Thanks for the memories. I met Lewis first in Palm Springs when I was the editor of Palm Springs Life. She was sitting, looking pretty, at one of the many events that bear Bob Hope's name, the Bob Hope Classic Golf Tournament. Her real name was not Lewis, and I was not introduced to her, but when I saw her again several years later, she had come along with a Project Monarch survivor just to watch the interview I was doing with her deprogrammer. I knew I'd seen her before, but at first couldn't remember where or when. When I saw her the first time, I knew nothing about her. She was just another one of the many hostesses types that you find working the parties in the Coachella Valley. I did not know she was a so-called monarch survivor. I didn't even know there was such a thing as Project Monarch when she took DID children and made patriotic sex slaves out of them. Now I was looking at her again in an entirely different context than the one at which I had met her. A friend who was a psychiatric registered nurse had come along to support me in the interview and she spent a good deal of time talking with Lewis while I interviewed the deprogrammer. It wasn't long before we learned that Lewis was a case very similar to O's. When I learned that I can ask her girlfriend if he should grant me an interview, she gave me a novel she had written when she was a fictional account of her own story. Her deprogrammer said that the novel was still full of her programming and that Lois was not yet reintegrated, fused, and therefore still had not fictions mixed up with fact in her mind. He suggested that we both wait for an interview until fusion was complete. After her functional personalities were working together, and she had better recall of specific events which were now occluded by amnesia from what that amounts to classical trauma-based conditioning. After several months, I was contacted by Lewis. She gave me an entirely new book, the truer story she had remembered and written down over the past several months of fusion therapy. It was a readable account which I've exerted and edited for presentation here. Today, Lewis is a 52-year-old and recovering from her disassociative disorder. She began to remember small, inconsequential things at first when she was 35. By 1988, six years before she finished her book, she thought she was simply a survivor of ritual abuse. Then, as she began to heal and remember more of her past, she realized the ritual abuse was merely a mind-controlled trauma base her pedophile father, among others, had used to condition her for future participation in what she says is still active Central Intelligence Agency's white slavery operation Project Monarch. Quote, From my earliest recollections, my father began the rigorous training and torture required to splinter my base personality with the intention of creating many separate and individual personalities for training and use by others as I grew older. End quote. 
She was physically, psychologically, and sexually abused continually by her father, his friends, and at a Baptist Sunday school at which the minister and church secretary oversaw a planned program of torture and ritual abuse. In addition to Christianity, Lewis said, the church secretary also practiced witchcraft in her darkened home, isolated and protected from outside intrusion by drape-covered windows. As a toddler, my father would get me up early on Saturday or Sunday mornings and take me and a carrot down the street to feed the horses. We always did feed the horses, but the actual purpose of these outings was to get me out of the house to go say Mrs. M for what they called my training. Lewis was raised in the affluent area of San Fernando Valley in Southern California. She was abused her entire childhood in many locations in and out of California, including U.S. military bases, where she was subjected to high-level use, abuse, and programming. The results of many years of trauma intentionally inflicted on her by her father and others created with her many separate personalities that were amnestic of each other. Quote, over time, I became a totally programmed robotic slave that could not, due to electronic programming and abuse, think to tell anyone what happened to me. I was used frequently in child pornography and child prostitution." End quote. By the age of 16, Lewis had many separate personalities, several specially trained to be the perfect sex slave. One was a, quote, presidential model with photographic memory used to deliver cryptic messages, most often during sexual encounters with top government officials, entertainers, and other world leaders. From 1988 to 1991, she was in daily therapy in California. She began remembering a complex past that now has been validated in part through intelligence community and FBI contacts, active and retired as well as through investigative journalists and knowledgeable mental health professionals. In her quest for understanding and self-knowledge, Lois also attended graduate school to obtain her master's degree in psychology. In April of 1991, she was forced to leave her home and family in California due to a threat on her life. Quote, I fled to Hawaii and began writing a book about my experiences. I began having vivid, detailed memories of being used as a sex slave and or human computer to some of our nation's highest level government officials in and out of the White House. Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, Henry Kissinger, George Bush, and many others, including top entertainment professionals, prominent among them was her owner, Bob Hope. My abusers made sure that I was instilled with very complex programming that would ensure my death should I begin to remember or tell." End quote. But despite the programs for her to have an accident or self-mutilate or kill herself, she, she began to remember today she is healthy, in control of her own mind, and has no intentions of hurting herself in any manner. Quote, I am taking extreme precaution, she says. That's why I am publicizing this message. I expected to encounter these criminals who would stop me from recovering further memories and obtaining expert help. In conjunction with the traumas at church and school, my father reinforced my program by the use of fairy tales. His favorite were from Disney themes and The Wizard of Oz. Sometimes, in the middle of the night, my father would traumatize me in order to get me to disassociate, which created the perfect trance state for mind programming. In this state, he would tell me that over the rainbow was a bridge to the other world, and that I would walk over the rainbow bridge into other worlds, and it would remain separate from my everyday world. He told me what happened over the rainbow would feel unreal, like a dream." End quote. Lewis was conditioned to forget her most recent covert encounters when she heard the word home. The trigger phrase began with a phrase from The Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home, and it was associated with being back in bed, sleeping after a night of being used in child pornography or as a child prostitute, and later after being prostituted to mobsters, celebrities, politicians, or anyone else who owner directed her to accommodate. Quote, these words function as a way to recruit and reorient me back into my everyday world without carrying the reality of what had happened back with me. I was instructed to sleep and wake up at home in bed with the land of Oz so very far away. That place that felt like a fairy tale that I must have made up was only a dream and was now very, very far away. 
I was now on the other side of the rainbow, and I was conditioned to forget that those experiences ever happened. If I remembered them at all, I remembered them as merely a dream. Later, in my teen years, all it took was for my mother and father to say, you can sleep all the way home. And I, I was conditioned, like Pavlov's dog, to respond to the world home with total and complete amnesia of what had happened to me that evening. Lois now remembers that she was taken to military bases around the country for more sophisticated programming. She was hooked up to high-tech electronics that performed a variety of functions interfacing mind and body responses. Quote, I was put in isolation chambers and left in isolation, sometimes spun with colored lights, always with one color at a time. I was placed in sophisticated chairs with electrodes attached to my head and shocked. Sophisticated audio equipment was used. I don't know what exactly they were accomplishing, but I felt tortured by it, Lois said. By the age of five, Lois was conditioned through torture and by the use of hypnotic techniques to hurt herself in many ways should she ever begin to remember her secret activities. Quote, Per program suggestion, she said, if I began to remember anything, I would stub my toe or burn myself on the stove, thus removing my focus from the remembered secret experience and diverted my attention to my wound. I was instructed in successful ways to cut my wrist in order to take my own life should I begin to remember or tell. There were also accident programs installed to ensure my death if I remembered. Many programs were installed early in my life that were available for use in suppression of the activities of my hidden personalities for years." End quote. Over years of torture, Lois remembered hearing her programmer say, If you remember, you will kill yourself. If you tell people, you will think you're crazy and lock you up in a mental institution. If you don't obey us, we will kill your family and your dog and cat. If you tell, we will kill you. End quote. Lois had witnessed killings for years, therefore she believed they were not kidding. Quote, I was used in child pornography and child prostitution from the time I was two years old, maybe, maybe even before. My father, who was a welder, sold me as a prostitute to neighbors and business contacts. My father had a group of pedophile friends with daughters my own age. They traded us sexually and each independently participated in filming us pornographically, sometimes including bestiality. I had many personalities trained in both porn and prostitution. At age seven, I was further trained by older women and prostitutes. I was taught tricks of the trade, most of which I already knew from years of sexual abuse and training. The prostitution and pornography was an organized activity. There were times when I was a child that I was used to entice and kidnap other children off the street into a black car. The kidnapped children were initially kept in cages and back rooms and then used in pornography and usually killed, sometimes in snuff films. We were all shocked with the cattle prods or stun guns for different offenses. I was locked in a room and sold as a prostitute to lots of them. The people in charge always left ropes, whips, and sex toys for use by the people who were paying for sex with me. Pornography was filmed with other children, women, men, and animals. They filmed me in many different secluded locations around Turlock Lake, California, the Colorado River, and places my family and friends went for water skiing vacations. End quote. Lois tells of being filmed by friends of her father's. One man filmed her and his own daughter having sex. Another forced his daughter of the same age to have sex with Lois and animals while they filmed it. Quote, to all outward appearances, all of these families appeared like normal, upstanding citizens of the community. No one would have ever suspected that in secret, all of these abuse was occurring. The mothers kept clean children in clean houses, smiled and acted polite and caring in public, and the fathers acted charming and were considered responsible businessmen in the community. What went on behind closed doors that no one wanted to believe or hear about not even my elementary school principal, was the physical, psychological, and emotional devastation of many, many children. By age 10 and a half, I had gone through puberty and was fully developed. This was much sooner than any of the other girls in my class at school. Despite the abuse, I was a pretty good student, with many school personalities who helped me act like a normal kid." End quote. 
Lois displayed behavior problems in school, often acting out what secretly was going on at home. But her teachers merely passed off her joking and constant disruption as typical of mischievous behaviors. Quote, I had personalities who were totally amnestic of any of my abuse and able to function perfectly normal in the school setting. I did the things that normal kids do. I was a cheerleader, performed in the chorus, sang solos in junior high, and won awards for the most beautiful smile and for being the class clown. I was girls league president and a member of the student council, and I received a number of awards of merit. And my mother had the cleanest house in the neighborhood. I started menstruating. This heralded abuse and rituals involving getting raped and impregnated sometimes twice a year. When the fetuses were two or three months old, they were aborted as rituals and ingested to fill the beliefs of the group that it made those participating more powerful. These were devastating, deeply traumatizing, and painful experiences that were repressed along with other traumas. They served as mind control reinforcement to ensure amnesia of my use in pornography and prostitution." End quote. Lois was taken to her grandfather's house in another state. Her grandfather, a local politician, like her father, was a pedophile and a member of the same organization which practiced ritual abuse. Lois was impregnated several months before they arrived at her grandfather's house, where, for the first of several forced abortions, were performed, Lois said, in a torturous fashion by a local doctor. Although I was raped and made pregnant at ritual, I was humiliated and shamed for becoming pregnant. Everything was a double blind. I was blamed and shamed for everything that happened, none of which I had ever had any control over. My baby, which was not yet old enough to be born alive, was nevertheless a perfectly formed fetus. My grandfather and my father had a ceremony behind my grandfather's house in which they convinced me that I had killed my own baby, which was obviously born dead, and they aided and forced me to participate. During the rest of my time where we were there, I was forced to entertain my grandfather's business and political friends. I danced naked on the table at meetings and performed sexual favors for many of his associates. To demonstrate my program abilities, my father prompted the men to use a cigarette to burn me in my vagina as I kneeled down in front of them. My father wanted to demonstrate that I would smile and show no signs of the burns due to reinforced disassociating mind control." End quote. Lewis attended junior high school and in the eighth grade, age 14, she met a young man, Clark, about whom her mother said, he's the boy you will marry. About that time, President Kennedy was killed. Lewis's programmers used the gruesome murder to reinforce her belief and their power over her. They told her, we are so powerful we can kill the president without anyone knowing, so don't think anyone will ever find out about you. Over the next several years, Clark and I were bonded to each other through cross-programming and shared trauma to ensure that Clark was under sufficient mind control to serve as my handler. A ritual at a Presbyterian church I attended regularly served to seal our bond and soon another, more sophisticated means of programming were utilized. Large vans with men in suits picked us up at locations in Ventura, California. They had specialized equipment in briefcases and other large equipment in the van. They routinely beat Clark up in front of me to show me what weakling he really was and how powerful and in control of me they were. They would slap me around in front of him to show him how powerless he was to help me and how much in control they were. Electric shock was used on both of us, first by inserting and activating an electronic prod in my vagina and then delivering the same to Clark on his penis. We each had watched robotically as other was tortured. The bond that was formed by shared trauma was powerful. It created feelings of being in this whole mess together and enforced the feelings that we would never be able to get out of. After they had sufficiently worn us down, they would strap us to sophisticated chairs and hook us up to electrodes. Tones were combined with electroshock in order to create access cues that give them quick and easy access to us both later on. Hypnotic messages and love songs were presented to us in order to facilitate our falling madly in love. All these conditioned experiences served to prepare Clark to deliver and hand me over to other men, then step aside while I serviced them sexually. It was his job 
to make sure I have delivered to the right place at the right time to the right person and for many years. That is exactly what he did. Bob Hope was one of the first high-powered men Clark delivered me to. For my 16th birthday present in 1967, Clark surprised me with a trip by train to the San Diego Zoo for the day. We boarded the train and after a while, Clark delivered me to a private car where Bob Hope, U.S. Senator Alan Cranston, and a couple of other men were waiting. Clark left me with them and robotically went back to his seat. I had sex with each of them as others watched. They were all old men even in those days." End quote. Lewis's pedophile father went to UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute in Westwood when she was 16 years of age for what everyone said was brain surgery. When he returned home, he kneeled on the floor next to his daughter's bed and wept. Lois describes her father saying, Honey, big things are happening. I've lost control over you. Lewis says she didn't know how to react since her father never cried before. I couldn't think to question him, Lewis said, or to wonder just what he was trying to tell me. So I let it go along with hundreds of other thoughts and questions that any normal, unprogrammed daughter would have thought to ask." End quote. If Lewis's recollections are correct, her father sold her to the famous British-born comedian Bob Hope, who promptly began setting his new prize up with the likes of Ronald Reagan. The story she tells about Hope makes you wonder about his connections with British intelligence in addition to CIA. Lewis says she met Reagan for the first time at a small theater that in part of the Motion Picture Country Hospital, located in Calabasas, California. The hospital is owned and operated by the Screen Actors Guild. Quote, I was instructed to watch many movies that were for programming purposes to instill certain preferred attitudes within me. To name a few, My Fair Lady, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, and The Wizard of Oz. I was programmed to go to the MPCH to watch some of the movies that played in the small theater on the hospital grounds. At other times, seeing a movie was just a cover for privately meeting with Ronald Reagan. Quote, I was told beforehand that I would have an important guest and that I was to make a good impression on him and to give him the full treatment. End quote. Quote, when Reagan and I were alone in the theater, the full treatment consisted of me singing and dancing on the small stage room and ending with a strip tease. After my seductive act, I walked out to where he was sitting alone and climbed naked onto his lap to recite my program. Following my program instructions, I told him that I could satisfy every desire he could imagine, that I came complete with instructions and was referred to him by his friend, Bob Hope. He seemed embarrassed a reaction that would follow him over the years in relation to me, and a bit overwhelmed, but his response was, I'm sold, tell Bob I'm sold. Having carefully recorded his exact response within photographic memory as instructed, I slipped out of his lap, collected my clothes from the stage floor, and got dressed. I had several personalities that were specially created to please Reagan sexually. One was created for total devotion to him over the years. I was used to extensively on him on and around 1968 by then-Governor Reagan and soon after with the United States President Richard Milhouse Nixon. These top politicians were guaranteed by the Central Intelligence Agency that my training in Project Monarch ensured the highest level of security. The level of mind control I possessed guaranteed that I could be used with these leaders who were involved at the highest levels of national security without my own awareness. I overheard conversation where the President of the United States and other top politicians were offered the services of escorts, the CIA's latest technology. Top secret Project Monarch trained sex slaves. They were encouraged to use them to satisfy their sexual and emotional needs instead of exposing themselves to outside influences, individuals because these escorts were guaranteed safe, had passed many tests to ensure the security, and were able to provide guaranteed secrecy. Presidents and others were highly discouraged from seeking other avenues of sexual indiscretions for fear of public exposures. This fear of political incorrectness, of seeking outside sexual gratification, instilled in these top officials by the CIA, fear of adverse publicity and other security risks created a heavy demand for the use of this latest human technology." End quote. According to Lewis and other survivors, Project Monarch beta-trained sex slaves were called million-dollar babies, 
referring to the large amount of money each slave would bring in from a very early age. Lewis said, quote, My father had done his homework ensuring that I'd been multiple personality certifiably under complete mind control before I was ready for use by certain individuals in top political and entertainment positions. I was 16 years old. But when many of the CIA may or may not have been aware of that a powerful group of men who I will call the council secretly ran the government. The council was also able to access me and had programmed me to subversively influence top government officials in ways that benefited them. The CIA's latest technology was being used against our own government. Our family doctor had me taking a continuous supply of antibiotic tetracycline to ensure I did not infect the government leaders with any social disease. He also prescribed mood elevators and mild tranquilizers for me during these times when I was extremely depressed. These helped to keep me happy. During the times I was being used by others, they accessed personalities that were cheerful and energetic, so my moods were never a problem. I was programmed, Lewis said, to stay thin, tan, and silly, a typical dumb blonde. Clark and I had been going steady since we were 14, and except for a brief one-year breakup in high school, I did not date any other boys. I was unaware that secretly laced into my life was a whole array of discreetly hidden sexual rendezvous with men in influential positions. I was filmed pornographically in many locations, including Woodland Hills, Malibu, Hidden Hills, Bel Air, and other places in the San Fernando Valley. At this stage in my life, the level of pornographic filming was more professional. There were themes, costumes, music, professional makeup, and lighting. Personalities inside of me were taught how to work with the lighting to catch the best poses and how to move my body so the film crew could get the best shots. Upon completion of the filming, I would go to home to my mother and father in Woodland Hills and later might even go out on a date with Clark, believing that I was an innocent, loyal, loving girlfriend. Due to the mind control I was under, I had no way of knowing that I was leading anything other than a normal life as a normal teenager and a normal family in Woodland Hills. The extensive contact I had with Bob Hope as a teenager and in my early 20s showed me that Bob was much more than an entertainer. Entertainment was actually just a clever hobby of his. I witnessed his participating as a strategically placed, influential, and integrated part of an underground group that secretly sought to control the world. He maintained direct ties to the White House. Though my affiliation with Bob Hope, I was to meet and interact with many powerful businessmen, politicians, and celebrities. I was often flown into a small airport in Palm Springs to be with Bob and his cronies. I was picked up by a silver limo and taken to his house. The men in suits would meet me and take me to Bob wherever he was, at home, on the golf course, or in town. They would provide me with clothes, shoes, and jewelry in which to dress. One day, I accompanied Bob to the golf course to the Palm Springs. He was dressed casually in light blue slacks, pastel yellow shirt, white belt, and a white canvas shoes. There were several other men golfing with him. I was there just to be with Bob. I was 17, thin, tan, and blonde, dressed in a tiny white dress, like a tennis outfit with a spaghetti straps. I had on white sandals that came up from my toe and a strap around my ankle. I wore a gold heart anklet, slave bracelet, on my left ankle. I was not invited to play the golf game, but was just instructed to watch and smile. Bob enjoyed having me people around. He would have parties attended by lots of famous people. Usually they were held at his home in Palm Springs. Sometimes I was given as a gift to one or more of his friends for the night, but was programmed to return to his room and sleep. Dolores Hope was usually not around. But when she was, it was strange to see Dolores at the parties. Knowing that I was having sex with Bob and accompanied him to different places with his friends and business associates. Dolores never appeared to know exactly what he did. Although my programming kept these activities hidden from my conscious mind, I would keep up late in the morning in my own bed in Woodland Hills with red eyes feeling totally exhausted after what I thought was a full night's sleep. I was not able to understand that the exhaustion was actually caused by food, water, and sleep deprivation, coupled with electroshock tortures, Lewis said. Dolores was already well along in years when Bob was fooling around with me, 
She seemed not to like it when I was around, and unfortunately, Bob did not offer much of an excuse for my presence, like Reagan did. He could not say I was his secretary or aide, but he did not tell he needed to spend lots of time with me to groom me for some of the USO shows for the troops. I can remember hearing Dolores' voice nagging at him one morning after a party while I was still there. He lied and told her I was there with some other man at the party. Not that I did not have sex frequently with many of his friends and business associates, but this time I had not. Bob referred me to the earlier days, my teenage years, as his little bunny. Through his USO involvement, he was friends with Hugh Hefner, and he became to the parties and sometimes even showed up. Mr. Hefner always brought at least two women with him, usually blondes. He never victimized me, and I believe he and perhaps others that met me may not have known I was a mind-controlled slave. Starlight was the name Bob gave me. Starlight was one of my alter personalities. She was to become his starlet. He told Starlight and other people when I was on his arm that he was giving me a leg up in the industry. At other times, he induced me to people at his favorite place and to his favorite niece. My instructions were that Starlight always wore her hair parted on the side with it combed down over one eye to look sexy. She was to be very sexy. When Bob took me to parties, he would tell everyone he was showing me the ropes and that I had endless talent and great potential in the industry. Bob took me to several of Hugh Hefner's penthouse parties in Los Angeles. There were windows all around at night. You could see the twinkling lights in the city. Bob told me that when I was on his arm for the evening, that was he was mine, but other times he was someone else's. Sometimes Bob prostituted me to Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and others, while Frank Sinatra served as a handler. Hefner had a bizarre exotic entertainment at his parties. Naked women who were painted like zebras appeared to walk through the living room fireplace without being burned, or he could have wild tamed animals like a lion that he was whipped into shape by a playboy bunny. One time he even had a man dressed like Tarzan whipping a girl dressed like Jane. Everyone said the girl was not really being hurt, that it was just an illusion. I don't know if that was true, it was like a lot of that magic sex show. Bob Hope took Lewis to Hefner's because he wanted her to be bunny trained. He asked her to pay close attention to the way the Playboy bunnies move so that she could move the way she entertained troops or Bob and his friends privately. Lois had been programmed much as David, O, Candy Jones, and others to carry secret messages locked behind post-hypnotic blocks. She said, quote, the council often programmed her to deliver a message to some entertaining celebrity or politician at a party they knew she was going to attend. I don't think Bob even knows some of the messages I was delivering, she said. I was told to hold the message until I had zeroed in on the targeted person. Then, when I had made eye contact and had their full attention, I was to carefully drop the message while maintaining eye contact. Quote, I was usually very quiet, and when I would deliver these messages, Bob was not aware I was going to speak. He would be caught off guard and would make a joke about loving to be with me because he never knew what would come up my mouth from one minute to the next. I was usually very quiet, and when I would deliver these messages, Bob was not aware I was going to speak. He would be caught off guard and would make a joke about loving to be with me because he never knew what to come out of my mouth from one minute to the next. He told people that I had a natural wit, but I was really programmed by others to deliver cryptic messages, cleverly made for certain select individuals, Lewis said. It was during these early years that I began believing heavily accessed and programmed by the council for use with many influential men and women in positions of power. In addition to my use with Bob Hope and Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California, I began being used with President Richard Nixon as a sex slave, and Henry Kissinger utilized my computerized mind files. I never had sex with Henry Kissinger or George Bush. My use within government circles was seen as a security proof. They felt my programming kept the information I carried from my own awareness and from access by others who did not know what the keys are to the system. 
What those in government did not seem to know was that the council also had the ability to access me, that they were secretly slipping in their own psychologically tested and carefully researched messages for me to deliver to presidents, governors, senators, foreign leaders, entertainers, and many other people who were in positions of power or public influence. The council studied people's psychological profiles and knew exactly what their likes and dislikes were, their sexual preferences, what perfumes they like, and any other information that could be used to influence individuals in ways which they were never even aware of. The council would pre-program me with instructions all based on careful research of the targeted person, what to wear, how to act, what type of sexual stance to take, specific words or phrases to say, and the best time to deliver them. Council always worked up to complete strategy and never sent me to a person unprepared. In these ways, Lewis says, they influenced government leaders to act, act in their own favor to pass or veto laws or bills that benefited their corporate holdings, to bring into office people who would be used as pawns, to influence judges and government agencies, and to control people in all walks of life. Quote, my experience was that the council's membership was publicly nameless and unknown and their true power and ability to manipulate the masses came down from the fact they were publicly unknown. From my perspective, these individuals acting in their shadows actually dictate the direction of our government takes. They were connected to people like Bob Hope through a secret liaison with me of which I was programmed not to even be aware. They felt they had their own identities and security locked up tight. Parties were given in New York at the Rockefeller Mansion around Christmas each year. My reliability had been tested for several years, and at 19, I seemed to graduate to a higher level of use, would be a higher loose than the President of the United States. In my experience, the council and certain intentional individuals like the Rockefellers were a higher level, standing head and shoulders above the government and mere politicians. End quote. Lewis would be flown to New York by Commercial Airline and met at the airport. She would be taken to get her hair and nails done, then brought back and dressed to be used to entertain top people from all over the world. At the parties, Lewis was dressed formally in expensive evening gowns and often provided a diamond brooch or huge diamond necklace to wear. The evening would usually end in a sexual encounter with the targeted individuals. Nelson Rockefeller was connected to Bob Hope and many presidents, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Bush, otherwise known as the Republican Party. Yet it wasn't only the Republican Party. Democrats were not exempt from involvement. They were both Democrats and Republicans involved with the council. At these bipartisan parties, Lois observed a small group of men who usually met in the back room after the party to discuss world strategies and business. It was not unusual to see some of the guests spend the night from among the select few who were invited to the party. Quote, I watched the men who literally ran the world, men who decided when it was profitable and or strategically important and politically correct to start a war. They even had it planned who would begin the fighting and where. It always added up to big money, power, and control. People in America think they elect their presidents, but from what I witnessed, they do not. The process of putting someone into office is a controlled and corrupt one. The media is also so controlled that the American people do not get the full and accurate story. The presidents are selected long before they are voted into office. It is no accident that Ronald Reagan or Pete Wilson won by a large majority. It was all rigged through financial businesses, political connections from the group, right down to businesses and political factions, and then on down to the public, quote, Lewis said. They own the press. They own key television stations and famous anchormen. They have key members who own the newspaper companies. They buy magazine companies and own many corporations that allow them to have leading edge on media exposure thus allowing them to control the information people see on the news, reading the newspaper, or hearing the radio. They are funded by some of the richest men and corporations in the world who aid them in getting what they want, when they want it, by whatever it means it takes to do so. They operate above the law, above the federal government. Quote, I witnessed and recorded in my photographic memory many of these encounters as I was bounced around the globe in the company of varied but influential 
people in the know, Lewis book chronicles all the details. Quote, in my late teens and early 20s, I was taken aboard U.S. Navy carriers when Bob was doing a show on his USO tours. I had several personalities who were specifically trained to sing and dance and several who were expertly trained to dance and strip. Usually Bob and I would be flown to the base and then helicoptered the rest of the way to the ship. Quote, on tour with Bob, there were always large bands with lots of music and lights set up on the stage. Red, white, and blue banners decorated the stage where we were performed. The shows were very festive, high-energy performance. Sailors would be standing packed together to watch the show. If the media was there, Bob totally controlled what they captured on camera, what segments could be filmed, and when they had to leave. What the boys didn't know was that Bob knew how to engage their emotions with certain specific words and phrases and songs. He knew how to lighten them up, get them really emotional and worked up, and then he would slip them suggestions key to conditioning, which helped them with certain unwanted attitudes. I overheard the council making jokes about the herds, the troops, and how stupid and easily led they were. After shows, I usually take him to the commanding officer's quarter to further entertain him in the privacy of his room. My perception with these officers had big egos and felt infatuated and inflated about their medals and ribbons. The council often slipped messages embedded commands to the officers through me, possibly without the officer's knowledge. After the show, some man would put a stun gun to my body and I would totally collapse into his arms. He would carry me over and lay me down until it was time to leave. The sensation inside was hot, then very cold. This was my reaction to electric shock. The man delivering the electricity also delivered programming to me. Before and after he zapped me, he said, You are fat and ugly and no man could ever be attracted to you. I never would have believed I was attractive enough to perform on stage had I begun to remember it. I was often in poor condition when I was helicoptered away. I felt like I was on every naval base in the United States at some time or another to accompany Bob on some of his USO tours or for my own programming. The programming at the bases was torturous. As a child in the late 50s, I was taken to a base where I was put in total isolation. Bright lights were put in my eyes and bands were put around my wrists, ankles, and forehead, and I was given an electroshock coupled with food and sleep deprivation and whatever other torturous programmers decided to use, including being hung upside down for an extended period of time. As I got older, programmers on military bases repeatedly drugged me and inflicted varied physical, sexual, emotional, and or psychological tortures that assaulted all of my senses. I was put into large cylindrical senses, chambers, where I was tied by wrists and my ankles to the all sides and left in isolation. There were red, yellow, and green lights flashing inside the chamber, but never two colors at once. Other times I was left alone in total darkness and stark silence for what felt like an eternity. Drugs, food, and sleep deprivation always accompanied by the programming, and afterwards I felt extremely tired, achy, nauseated, but mistakenly assumed I just contracted the flu. With people Bob really wanted to own or use, he would take pictures of a rape with hidden cameras. He knew just how to get these people. He would show the man a picture of the rape and child and say, we sure don't want these pictures or anything like these to get out into the wrong hands or ruin your career, do we? Then he would simply tell the man what he wanted. It usually had to do with getting another friend into a key position in the government. Looking the other way when a case came down or getting a bill passed or vetoed. He knew just how to control these men and they usually complied." End quote. From 1998 to 1988, and to 91, Lois was a therapy seven days a week during which time, she says, she uncovered pages of programming from inside. Then, one day, she received a dollar bill in her wallet, and on top of it was written, April 12-2042. Lewis knew these were program numbers, and since she had two serious accidents on April 12, 1985 and 1987, she was convinced April was to be her next programmed accident date. At her next session with her programmer and deprogrammer, the doctor told Lewis that she didn't think she was safe 
and had better leave Los Angeles. Quote, a friend came and offered me a place to stay in Hawaii and I flew her home on April 13, 1991. She introduced me to a man who helped me deprogram myself. I taught him what I knew and read some books on NPD and ritual abuse and applied it to the technology it already had. I ceased all contact with my husband, Clark, staying on the island for five weeks, but then I came home when my attorney told me I would lose custody of my children if I didn't. Later, she said, I discovered that I had been at a containment center for mind-controlled slaves. And Lewis would eventually learn that her original lawyer worked as a containment asset. I lost custody of my children anyway, and my financial support was very limited due to being at a high-level model. My children visited me summers and Christmas in Hawaii, but even if after I thought I was free, Lewis said, I was still just being prostituted. End quote. While now, for the first time in her life, Lewis says she is free thanks to some unusual therapy with deprogrammers who had the expertise to really help me. Sadly, Lewis believes her children carry on the multi-generational custom so commonly found with Project Monarch. She believes they are programmed carrying out their robotic intelligence functions under the control of their father and the watchful eyes of the council-appointed handlers. Bryce Taylor had claimed in two Kiss and Tell books to be a veteran CIA sex slave. On November 2nd, KCOP, a Los Angeles television station, aired her allegations on the evening news. It was a spy thriller unfolding in the heart of suburban Los Angeles, Taylor explained to KCOP's Jody Baskerville. She was a typical soccer mom with a successful husband, three kids, and a beautiful home in the San Fernando Valley. That is, until she started telling the secret double life of the mind-controlled sex slave for the CIA. That's crazy, chides Tony Ortega, repeatedly writing in New Times, an alternative newspaper in Los Angeles that publishes a handful of news articles and movie reviews amid a sea of ads for prostitutes, massage parlors, nightclubs, and bars. One might fret that a publication depending for its existence upon the industry would exhibit a frisson more civility in its unquestioned acquisition society, and the hookers who advertise in the two-time times are also sex slaves in an economic sense. After all, it didn't depend upon low blows like crazy. Tony Ortega derides Taylor and all others alleging to be victims of CIA brainwashing and bioelectric process control viciously. Some subjects of his past articles by the reporter find him to be a colorful figure in his own right. Francis Emmer Barwood, a Phoenix City Councilwoman candidate for Secretary of State of Arizona two years ago, met Tony Ortega at a UFO conference in Laughlin, Arizona in 1998. Ortega, she recalls, lost money gambling and definitely drinking. The drunken reporter was annoyed that he had kept to wait until they introduced me to speak and kept commenting negatively about the people there. At this point, it should be said that no judgment regarding the truth of Bryce Taylor's claims is made here, and that this is not purpose of this rebuttal. They are indeed bizarre, as KCOP acknowledged, and unsubstantiated, having proven to be true or false, is the New Times coverage of the documentary is demonstrably false, depending entirely upon vicious personal attacks, selective prying of details from the historical record, innuendo tactics normally associated with historical revisionism, with the effect of obscuring the already well-known involvement of the CIA in sex trap operations and mind control. Tony Ortega's sex, size, and videotape is a study in bias. Even tabloid TV didn't buy Bryce Taylor's claims of being a CIA sex slave, Ortega notes, as if the agency's use of prostitutes is news to him, a topic only fit for the tabloid television. Forget that former State Department employee John Marks of the New York Times exposed CIA mind control operations and experimentation in the search for the Manchurian candidate based on the government's own documents over 20 years ago. Forget a recent Atlantic Monthly feature painstakingly detailed a grossly unethical CIA mind control experiment at Harvard that contributed to Ted Kaczynski's mental deformations, the making of the Unabomber. 
but Ortega thinks mind control is for the tabloids. Quote, Channel 13 saw higher ratings in her ratings, Ortega reports. Not that Ortega bothered to investigate said, quote, ratings. He is too busy dribbling a transparent goo of denial over them to actually look into whether or not the sex-late allegations have any foundation. For support, Ortega turns to a much-quoted expert on mind control, Dr. John Hotchman, a cult mind control expert and practicing psychiatrist in Encino, California, interviewed for a KCOP segment. Hotchman is also a consultant in courtroom cases involving child abuse allegations and coercive persuasion, a science honed by the CIA in the prison system involving all forms of harassment this side of violence. Dr. Hotchman is also an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, affiliated for over years by the late Dr. Louis Jolin West, chair of the neuropsychiatric department and one of the most infamous CIA mind control experimenters on the public, Dole. The obvious conflict of interest is lost in Ortega, who cites Hotchman as a legitimate source. Hotchman, mind again, also serves on the editorial and advisory boards of the Colt Studies Journal, a publication with CIA ties. He is also on the board of the American Family Foundation, a CIA front that boasted Dr. West on its board, and the False Memory Syndromes Foundation, another CIA front. And Dr. West again turned up on the advisory board. In 1990, Hotchman won the John C. Clark Award for Distinguished Scholarships in Cultic Studies from the American Family Foundation. The CIA front, and all of this explained in my own Psychic Dictatorship book in USA 1995, a book that documents the barbaric history of the CIA's use of human subjects in brain experimentation, many of them incapacitated for life by agency scientists. Given his own ties to Langley's Cold War Napoleons, Dr. Hunchman's response is predictable. Quote, I'm sure Taylor has no evidence that the CIA is really doing this. Quote, he sniffs. It would behoove New Times to pay attention to current events. As recently as late November, a Canadian newspaper reported that CIA's James Tyhurst engaged in a relationship with a harem of sex slaves, and he was sentenced for it. Thank you.